0: from swivel media and the product bus this is the bootstrap i'm scotty allen the bootstrap is your source of news and discussion all about building startups from scratch this week i'm joined by sean greeley to unpack first customers finding your first customers. We're not unpacking actual customers because that would be messy and probably illegal. But first, let's take a look at some things you should know. Here's the startup rundown for Thursday, the 9th of November. Well, if you thought you heard the faint sounds of sobbing tech bros earlier this week, it might have been because OpenAI has once again cemented itself as the dominant player in the AI market, with ChatGPT's newest features quite likely spelling disaster for numerous startups. At their first dev day on Monday, OpenAI announced a raft of new features, including GPT4 Turbo, which comes in text-only and text-plus-images versions, new APIs, and the ability for users to create their own GPTs and eventually publish them to a store. This serves as a sobering reminder to ensure that your product is unique, valuable, and stands on its own as a way of relieving the pain of your customers. We said speed to market was going to be the key to AI-powered solutions, and now we know the speed is turbo. Yet another big-time startup is facing hard times in today's strict economic conditions. According to an article from the Australian Financial Review, the heavily backed home loan industry disruptor Athena has been forced to cut jobs to reduce losses after their loan book shrunk by 7% last financial year. The company has reportedly reduced losses from $47 million to $29 million for the year by making cuts in marketing, sales, professional services, and staff wages. Investors such as SquarePeg Capital, Airtree Ventures, Macquarie Bank, House Plus, and Australian Super will be watching closely after staking a large bet on Athena. Startups needing to raise additional capital face difficult conditions at the moment, with a massive downturn in funding affecting the entire ecosystem across the last 18 months. The charity startup GiveTree is in a mad rush to put out fires, started by its founder Sam Joel, after he released a tirade of misogynistic posts and harassments on Saturday. Startup Daily reports that in posts that have since been deleted, Joel used deplorable, sexually charged language while also bemoaning efforts to promote gender representation, claiming that complaints of mistreatment is classic women. VC investor Elaine Stead, the target of many of Joel's statements as well as a personal harassment campaign, said that this behavior is not rare. Rather, it's a symptom of a workplace culture that is structured to be hostile towards women. GiveTree and Sam Joel have since released statements apologizing for the incident. And Joel has committed to therapy to resolve his, quote, underlying issues with sexism, end quote. Giant sigh. And speaking of long shots, Fortnite is once again at the center of the legal battlefield, this time against the tech giant Google. CNN reports that Epic Games, the developer of the popular battle royale game Fortnite, has filed a lawsuit against Google in the U.S. District Court in California's Northern District. The lawsuit focuses on the Google Play Store and its fees for in-app subscriptions and one-off transactions. Epic Games has been a big part of an ongoing dialogue over the last year regarding whether or not Apple and Google foster a competitive app distribution market. I I actually read that with a straight face, guys. The lawsuit alleges that Google's terms create an illegal monopoly over app distribution on Android devices. Stay tuned to see if this David can get a slingshot win over Goliath. And that's the startup rundown for this episode. We'll be back in a moment. If you build it, they will come may have worked for Kevin Costner, but we know by now that relying on that strategy for your startup is unlikely to win an Oscar. Where do your first customers come from and how do you keep them happy once you find them? To help me unpack this, I'm joined by Sean Greeley. Sean is the driving force behind Sell Anything, a company dedicated to helping founders increase revenue and establish repeatable sales processes. He previously founded successful aged care tech company Mint. He's a former South Australian Young Achiever of the Year and he joins us now. Well, Sean, welcome to the Bootstrap.
1: Hey, Scotty. Thanks for having me.
0: No worries. Let's get stuck into it. So when we think about bootstrapping founders in early days, what do you reckon is the first step that they should be taking in identifying their initial customer base?
1: Yeah, love it. So, I mean, when we're building anything or we have an idea, we're obviously, we have someone in mind who's going to use it. So, you know, often it's from our own experience or a family member or a loved one or something we see in a place of work. and for me, I, I think it's always leading with what's the role or description. Like if we're working with businesses, so as astronauts, high school teachers, tradespeople, CEO of a Fortune 500, and then how do we imagine them using it as well? The one thing identifying them is is we always get hung up on who the end user actually is, opposed to like who the decision maker is as well. So who's like the, the classic iPhone example of um, you know go to a high school, ask a group of uh, year 12 students who has an iPhone, they will put their hands up. Um, who bought it was the parent. Who uses it is is the kid, right? So <laughs> compartmentalizing who our different groups are, but ultimately, who do we think is actually going to get the benefit and the value from from this tool and use it potentially daily or weekly or whatever basis you believe as well, right?
0: Mm. Yes. I, when you said you know we start off with an idea of who a user is going to be, I think sometimes. We, yes, but we we do, but it can be this really broad idea of, and so I love what you were saying about breaking down to roles and decision makers, and we'll definitely come back to that as well. But often, I I think it's only natural that we have an idea, we fall in love with it, we think everyone would love this. And then often it's trying to really niche that down into a specific place to start that can make a difference, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And if you're if you're solving for a problem first, like let's say it's scheduling timesheets or scheduling staff, you know, the best way to go about it is have as many conversations as as possible, right? So don't hide behind your laptop or your your keyboard and go and talk to people in person and understand maybe everyone who's got that problem and you might find out that tradespeople, right, they've got the biggest pain and then that's your niche. But you only get there by say having ten, you know, hundred conversations, ten with each group of people who potentially you're helping solve a problem of timesheets. And I think yeah, like you're saying, right? Have have talk to more people, have more conversations, and niche in at some point. But you can't niche immediately. You might need to go wider and then narrow in even before you build something, which is really exciting.
0: So, so what are some low cost strategies that people can use to kind of capture those first users?
1: I think, well, and from my personal experience in in software building tech startups, Facebook groups. Um, so let's start digital first, right? So, like using Facebook groups in a certain niche. So I did this personally in in aged care, in healthcare, in disability space. And then I've also done that as well in recruitment, in the trades industry. It can go really broad. I think the great thing about Reddit threads, Facebook groups, Twitter, even LinkedIn is people are coming together generally around a problem or topic, and then they're communicating on that. And you can't like obviously actively sell in a lot of these groups. It does break the rules, but you can learn a lot about their problems and understand the people and start to. You know, you might, I found as an example, someone talking about a problem they had getting updates about their loved one in care at a nursing home. We were solving for that problem with my company, Mint. And I messaged, I just replied to them and said, Hey, my family's been using this tool because we were, and they became a user. And that's like a really great example of like, I was just sifting a Facebook group. The other one, which I'm a huge fan of as well, is low cost, maybe heavy on the time factor is going door to door. Like actually going and talking to businesses, maybe attending their events, conferences, or where they hang out. You could go to uh, Eventbrite or like any of these platforms and you can see events under industries or different verticals and you can really identify where these people might be gathering and just having those conversations about the problem and then organically kind of getting to this point where you're explaining what you're doing and maybe just asking them, hey, would you like to try my product or, or use that tool? There's a, there's a, there's a lot more time heavy, complicated ways to do it with direct outreach. But if you were to say, like, what's the first thing you could do and which complements your previous question, those would kind of be the strategies I would use. And then I would lean into a more direct approach of actually reaching out to them a phone call or uh, doing cold calling uh, or alternatively messaging them directly and just asking some questions. And yeah.
0: Yeah. There's a lot there. So let's try and unpack a little bit of, of that because you said a lot of great
1: sure. things. Sure. <laughs> I love...
0: What you were saying about times where you just actually need to get out and pound the pavement, and it is a it's a very tricky thing to i guess find that way to do that where you don't feel like you are being a nuisance and different personalities you know i'm I'm more introverted when it comes to random social interaction, those things of feeling like you know what I'm not actually wasting people's time, if I can find something where I'm really trying to find out if they actually have this problem or not. And if you can find the right way to frame things, most people are very happy to talk about their favorite topic, which is themselves. But finding that way to frame it. Can you give any examples of the door-to-door piece that you can think of where you've seen that be successful or you found it successful for yourself?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And just very quickly, I'd love to touch on the the personal bias or our own, you know, I call it like fear of the phone, FOTP, when I work with people helping them understand how to do cold calling and these kind of things. And I think the, the dri- your driver or the reason, uh, your why has to be big enough to kind of get you to that point where it's not actually about how the person feels with the interaction. Like if you're being polite, authentic, and you lead with the fact that you're trying to solve this problem for them or someone they care about or their business or whatever it is, right, that they do see some value or benefit then for them it's important and it's a priority. And for you, you should feel really passionate about that. And that's that's personally how I've always got past that bias of like, oh, I feel uncomfortable doing this activity. It's a little awkward. But if your end result is is really driven by the why, then it should be okay. For the for the door knocking and and things like this. So I've done it in commercial cleaning, we just go into businesses, very have a flyer, introduce yourself, very, very simple, hi, you know, I'm Sean. I'm building this business. We're trying to solve this problem for commercial cleaners. Is there anyone here who could give me five minutes of the time to answer three questions for me? Mm-hmm. It would be a really big help. So I'm just asking for help. I'm not asking for money. I'm not asking for an hour to go out for lunch or dinner. Help is what I'm asking for. Mm-hmm. That really leans into people's empathy, the empathetic side. And also, if you're talking to a business owner or someone who's running a business, they've been in your shoes before, which I think is a really like nice thing to think about. Is I, you know, I've used another framework of, I'm sure you can appreciate when you were early on building this business, yeah, trying to figure this all out. That's where I am. And I would, I would really appreciate if you could just answer a couple of questions that I have and then moving mm. into what you're building, the problem you're solving and the why mm. I have unsuccessfully done the door knocking in some other industries because it's just not, not a, not a cool thing to do. And yeah. receptionists are scary. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very true. Yeah.
1: So true. Yeah. But I did this in aged care earlier this year for a new idea I had, and I used the help framework. So I went on Google Maps, I just searched for nursing homes, and I was just calling and saying, "Hey, I'm Sean. I'm I'm building this thing. I have three questions. I'd love some feedback. Would you mind helping me?" And then I just asked the three questions, and it was that simple. And Mm -hmm. people were often really happy to help me with that framework.
0: I think centering that around the problem, as you said, is key because it's a, uh, and and if you don't have a clear enough basis on which to talk to people about a problem you shouldn't be probably talking to people correct on the b2b side there are simply personas that are not online that don't congregate in places because they're on their feet working all day and so it is very much a case of sometimes you got to walk into places and just even work out how i had someone a while ago that was wanting to sell something to swim schools and it was really a case of you're going to have to get in the car and walk in and see if there's somebody that you can talk to because people running a swim school aren't sitting around on Facebook groups with other swim school people.
1: <laughs> yeah, correct. And even even just showing when you get that pushback, I think of I don't really have time for this and you can follow up with. Hey, like I understand you're being really generous and I appreciate that. I don't mind waiting or I don't mind like walking and talking to the car and you make it frictionless. I think that's the important part is when we're, what, what a lot of people do, the mistake they make is they ask for too much. Like, Oh, could you book through this calendar link? Like, you know, big red flag. Yeah. Could you do this for me? Could you do this for me? And yeah. it's all about me, me, me. Whereas what we're trying to do is we're trying to turn that around to be like, I will do what is required to get that access to you for just a couple minutes. Like you tell me how what the, what the rules of engagement are essentially, right? Mm. And I think that's the best way to go about it. But mainly really driving though that, that authenticity and that realness and being human and in person does make a big impact when you're trying to get those first conversations.
0: People often will ask, how many people should I talk to in this stage? And obviously, it depends on the, the industry. But do you have an answer that you give people in that space?
1: So hard because I've, the, main, the main rule is, can you deliver? So if you if you can only talk to one person and serve them correctly and provide what's promised, only talk to one. The classic mistake is you go like people go and set up a massive mm. email campaign, they talk to too many people, they get all these meetings booked in and then they either can't attend the meetings, they can't provide the product or service, or they don't have a mechanism for people to get into the product or service and it becomes all about yeah, it becomes very time restricted. So I think there's a few ways. Like, first one is you have to understand where your product is up to or your offering is up to. So if it's delivering on value and people can get into it and self-serve, you can obviously talk to more people and and offer it to more people. If it is still very heavy on your time and onboarding potentially, you need to consider that. And what you want to do as a differentiator, because early on, it's very unlikely you're going to have the best product on the market. You want to overgear to white glove service. right? You want your customer service to be amazing. You want people to feel special, take them on the journey. And to do that, you generally want to serve less people because your time is being more invested in the relationship and the customer experience. But you should also look at what a customer's worth. So if you're getting to the point where you're charging, you need to know what your server costs are, what say your Twilio, like notification system, Apple Store, all these fees, and you can work backwards to probably breaking even would be goal number one, right? So if it's, yeah, cost is 1K and I need 10 customers at $100 and that's goal one. Then let's just work to that, and let's have a really simple way to figure that out. And those first ten customers is always a good basis. I think a lot of people go zero to one, one to ten. Hmm. They're going to be different. They're going to come from lots of different places. But it it should be yeah, based around can you deliver and solve the problems as well.
0: Yes. Yep. I I think that is a trap. That really good advice for early stage bootstrapping tech founders where. When we, we listen to best practices and we talk about how funded startups do it, the ideal obviously is to build a product-led uh, user journey to be able to have that seamless acquisition. But I'm always advocating for a minimum, minimum viable, which is where we build only what we have to. And then we do most of it for our first set of users to validate that this is actually going to work. Because I think then when when you do set that product-led journey as the, the goal, there's a lot that you have to do in that space to actually make it frictionless. And you can do all that and then discover that the premise that it's all built on is wrong. So being able to... I like what you said about the White Glove service, being able to build a let's actually do it or, you know, obviously it depends on the product, but let's kind of, if we have to do some things behind the scenes more manually for our first group of users to really validate that we should be building this out, or even if it's to get validation that this is something that people will subscribe to, let's run a manual version of it for 30, 60 days and see what that uptake is before we actually go ahead and build. Because the difference, one of the differences between a VC funded startup and a bootstrapping startup is that with VC funding, I might be able to build something to test that and then throw it away if it doesn't work. But if building a, a full journey in an MVP is going to use my entire budget, then it's a really bad way to waste your money. So I think you can kind of fake it till you make it.
1: Yeah. You should, you should also be considering the markets you're in though, as well, because in, in the States where people are potentially burning relationships more often like it's not often framed like that but if you're selling a lot of something to a ton of people and then not delivering or just changing concepts after iteration one that can leave a bad taste in people's mouths right and in australia we're a much smaller market if you're if you're selling apac but australia very specifically is a tiny market so if you are selling to people you want to deliver but they're also slow movers in australia so you need to make sure that Yeah, you're on that and raising money here is hard as well. So ultimately, like you're more likely going to be bootstrapping than raising cash. I know the dream is to raise money. But if you kind of accept that we just need to get paying customers, then the best way to do that is provide amazing value Mm -hmm. and and deliver for them. And I love the point of doing it manual first. We did some reporting functions manually where people pressed a button, they requested a report. I, I made a very silly mistake of opening it to all our customers. So I spent like 48 hours just chained to a desk drinking coffee while I made all the reports manually. So, you know, learn from that mistake. But nonetheless, <laughs> it's, it was a, it was an upsell feature. People paid for it and we validated it. And it's a great example of like, just do it manual to start with potentially.
0: When I think about product-led growth, part of that is understanding that every step along the way, the whole only reason to do it is for learning because we don't know yet. So if we if we build too far ahead... Without validating, we, we get away from that.
1: The, the other reason you might serve less people initially is to spend more time actually on site or like with the users, with the first group so that you can like do rapid prototyping or change designs or update functions and have the mental space to iterate. Right. Whereas if you're, if you're spending all your time doing customer support and support tickets, you're probably not having time to solve the problem that's causing the bug or the tech support issue. Depending how big your team is,
0: I, I'm sure that you see, and I get a lot of LinkedIn and Instagram ads that are like, you know, we'll give you 20 qualified leads in X amount of time, etc. Is there any value in that?
1: In my opinion, it brings you the wrong client when you're early on. So it's a great tool to use if you can if you can burn money because you're going to get people who aren't ever going to spend it with you. But if you uh, if you do not have a massive budget or cash flow or a pot of like a, a, you know, a treasure chest of cash, you should just be focusing on those people who feel the most pain and are probably pain aware already. So they're actively searching, they're looking, you're not just bombarding them with a, a free offer. And I think you just need to, you need to really qualify that they're worth the free thing. So, you know, if you were to qualify, like, yes, say say for me, early stage startup doing, you know, zero to two hundred fifty k in revenue or five hundred k plus. It's a founder leading sales. They're looking to grow to over a million in revenue. Um, sure, I'll offer you a call, a free call with me because of that. But if you're like, "Oh, I'm at the idea stage," it's too. It's it's just too early. Like I don't want to waste your time either because my value is not super clear to you. And it goes both ways when qualifying. So you have to qualify that you provide value to them and they get value from your service, right? But that's a great question. Those those things are a massive trap, and you end up. It's, it's a race to the bottom a lot of the time. Whereas you should be able to find your first customers when starting out through say, even if it is a free offer, but you should maybe get something from them in return, whether it's a review or feedback or a referral potentially as well. That's a wicked question, Scotty.
0: I'm glad you mentioned qualified leads because that's something that we didn't touch on like explicitly. And that is so important. All leads are not created equal and the working out, who is actually worth spending your time with, who is worth spending your time on even because you have limited amounts of time. It is uh, something that I've learned. I, I didn't come from a sales background. I come from education and I've done more product management on the business side and not, not scads of business development. But when I have done it, the, I remember the first true business development manager that I worked with that, we came back for some conference with all these emails and she was like, well, how many of these are qualified leads? And we were like, what now? Like,
1: <laughs> What's what's that? No, we got their what's email. That? We did it. We yeah. did the Go thing. to
0: those conferences <laughs> and the people are like, sign up here and get a free iPad and all that stuff is such a waste of time of everybody's time. Because then is someone actually going to go through and chase all those people, most of whom are going to be, I just want on the iPad understanding that and having those, uh, those bits. Really, really important. When you think about bootstrap founders, what do you think are some common mistakes that they often make when they're trying to find those initial customers?
1: So with I'll, I'll talk about some of my, my problems and then talk <laughs> about some of the, the clients I've helped out and everything. So firstly, some of the mistakes I made, like I thought I'd made it too quickly. So you know, I got one or two big customers or a few good meetings and I just was really set on like, oh, they're... They're paying, they're using, it was like really, there's a lot of ego or, you know, it wasn't real validation as uh, like a lot of vanity in it. And I think, you know, if you get trapped into the, the cliche of becoming a, a tech founder entrepreneur, you can, your vanity can lead you in certain ways of you know, vanity validation. Mm-hmm. The other one as well, though, is not getting those clients signed up in the right format. So their paying cycle when cash is released, understanding the cost of running them. But if I go a layer back, I would say it's like they sit behind their they sit behind their laptop, which is a bit of a contradiction because I help a lot of people with sales processes driven by LinkedIn cold calling things from behind your laptop. But initially, you really need to be in your market. Like uh, if you traded all the all the networking events you're attending right now, because most founders are going to like accelerator things, VC things, pizza nights for entrepreneurs. If you traded all of that for your customer mm. networking events mm. or customer focused things you would be amazed at how quickly your business velocity changes and like not letting your own bias as well. Stop you from trying a proven process. Yeah. So saying yeah. from, from my respects, like I hear a lot all the time, oh, I don't want to do that form of direct out. Like I don't want to do cold calls or I don't want to do customer support calls because I don't like them. And it's like, okay, well that's you, but I can tell you for a fact, like the way these people currently buy services or products is this way or their expectation from service delivery is this. That's you. That's and me. then the other, the final one would be they establish the relationship on free or unlimited use. So they set themselves up for this failure of actually turning a dollar because early on, and it's not your fault, right? Like you are kind of scared of the fact that your product might not deliver. It's all new. You don't even know what to say. And you get to this point where you can't, someone's been using your products or your service potentially for you know, 30 to 60 days and you're now where you need to be for someone to pay. But they are in this this world where you are just saying, just keep using it. Just keep using it. Like, I just love your feedback. I love your feedback. And then out of nowhere, you turn on a payment mechanism and they don't want to pay because the relationship is built, is not built on that.
0: I love what you said about the vanity. I, mean, I think it is, it's ego. It's also optimism sometimes that can be... I see people counting chickens before they've hatched. Right. They say, we've got X, we've got this client, et cetera. And then when you really dig into it, either, well, they have them using the product, but they're not paying, or they're actually still in negotiations. They don't have a signed contract. And all those things make a, you need to be really honest with yourself about in order to make good decisions moving forward. The giving away for free thing is definitely a giant trap. It is that finding that balance of what are you doing. Obviously, if it is a B2C platform where you're creating a free user experience and testing it, right? If it is SaaS and if there is some implementation required, then you may certainly not be charging full amount for your first client, but if you do it for free, that's how they're going to value it. And so finding that balance of I'm working with a client at the moment where the potential for their product is huge, but the implementations are going to be very custom because they're very big organizations that they are going to be working with. And so they were initially like, should we do the implementation for free? And I said, absolutely not. If these guys have got a truckload of money, if they're not prepared to put 10 or 20 grand into a pilot program with you to build something that is going to give them incredible value, then it's not worth it for anybody, and so that that thing or I, and and also as you said, once you have set expectations with someone about what they're paying for your product or what the terms are, then it's very difficult to turn around and make dramatic changes to that because they see it in a certain spot, they feel special. It's, it is a trick. Obviously, the higher the ticket it is, the bigger the risk is. The other trap that I see in this stage is obviously when you're selling your initial for your initial customers, you're taking feedback and with B2B products, you understand that the client's going to have some specific requirements, but everybody, when they're looking at systems at products and then their own context will be like, Oh, this is great. But it would also be great if you did X and then you get into that trap where the product that you're doing or that you've committed to them now is actually too far away from the North star of where this all started. You've got to then ask, are we now building a custom software product for this particular client or does everyone else want this? Or, you know, and I know, I've talked about this before, but when you have a, a client that has those really specific needs, you do all the customization for them thinking that everyone else in their industry is going to, want the same stuff and then realize that even though they do the same thing every business has got its own processes and so it doesn't work for someone else. So what would you suggest in terms of I guess ways to avoid that when you are trying to win your first business? How how do you get around those pitfalls?
1: I have actually made this mistake myself, so I can talk from experience here. White <laughs> to talk about like big big companies kill small companies. The the problem the problem is that you need to build for a market, not a customer, right? Like you're not becoming a custom software development agency. The, the trap is that you, when you're talking, when you're selling business-to-business software, you will end up in your first... To get your first 10 customers, you end up with this odd cohort. You end up with these SMBs, you end up with mid-enterprise, and there's always one big player. And the big player is normally attracted to you by an innovation team. A CEO saw you at an event that you presented... Or alternatively, you just met them through direct outreach. And their question marks are like, you know, we've had this idea already in our innovation team because we're massive, but there's this startup doing it. We should engage them and we can give them premium money, right? So you get paid a bomb and you see this big, you see this big probably multi six figure or first, you know, six figure check. And you think, wow, that's our whole, like, that's our whole target for the first year of business. And then you've got these smaller businesses who are paying a lot less, but as a group, they could hit the same amount and the disparity of what product people need it gets really big because you end up the, the big player has all these they have relationships, they have structure, they invite you in, they take you out and you and it's really nice like don't get me wrong, this is amazing to happen, but you end up just feeding them and instead of actually what you should do, which is what so when I made this mistake previously in the next company I was in, what we did was we had a really great way of committing to product roadmap based on validation certain periods of times known as development sprints. And then we had this tool called product board where we fed all of our feedback and insights into it. And we could see it load up against jobs to be done or key problems, right? So what are we trying to solve for this client? And then what we did was we actually presented this to our first cohort of customers. So we said, look, this is the biggest thing that everyone wants and you want this, you know, to this big player, you want this, but we, like the other 10 of our customers who all spend not as much as you, but they do spend a lot together. They represent the market and that's what they want. Mm -hmm. So we then basically just entered into conversation around, they said, well, what's it going to take? And we said, we would need to put on another developer, which we're not going to front. You're going to have to pay for that. And we did custom development. But the main thing that happened, it did not take away from our product velocity for the market. So yes, we did some software development custom, but no, we didn't leave behind our market audience. And that was like, you would actually probably be better off putting that customer to, to the side if you can't serve them. I mean, you would be. And just focusing on mm-hmm. this group. And the best way you can actually work that out is you look at competitors. So a lot of a lot of founders don't want to look at competitors. I'm going to reinvent the wheel. I'm not going to do the same thing. But I guarantee if you Google what you want to build, someone in the States has probably done it. And you can then almost look potentially at a storyboard of how they've built their product, And you can probably figure out why. And then you can work backwards and actually go, okay, we know we need this stuff. Mm -hmm. This is for the bigger players and that'll come later on. I'll stop there because I'm very passionate about this problem because I've I've wasted (laughs) a lot of time or not a lot of time, but I made the mistake. And it was still successful as a customer, but we definitely, we definitely realized 12 months later, oh, if we had to focus on this smaller group who were showing like a daily active, really good usage. So they were using every day. They're really engaged from the jump and they, would buy what we already had. So we were just selling what we had. We didn't have to build anything new. That would have been a great way to assess our next stage of customers. So what can we sell to who with what we have right now?
0: Yes. Sometimes those big customers that have those specific needs, ultimately they're bad customers. Particularly when we're talking about customizing with in business, there are times where people are trying to solve problems through an external like, development process when actually it's an internal you know process problem so having that base to validate their needs on even if you are building for this client having those other people in that space to to validate to for them to say oh yeah we have that problem as well or I oh, we don't know what you're talking about and uh, and then it is absolutely a case of not just of okay, well, this is going to be custom development, but is it actually worth it? Because that eats up resources, et cetera. And I've, I've been in exactly the same boat. I've seen the same things. It's very hard when you are trying to make your first, you know, big chunk of money to turn down a big chunk of money, but it can ultimately be the, the death of something if you're not careful, particularly with SaaS, I think.
1: Uh, yeah, definitely. And I, I think the other part, which you kind of etch on there a bit is uh, your cash flow. So if that client leaves you or they don't renew, this happens in services. Like imagine you run a lawn mowing business and your main customer is the local council and then they their contract's renewed with someone else. Your lawn mowing business no longer has a customer. Yeah. Whereas if you're doing residential, potentially, you know, one customer leaving doesn't really matter. That's the other problem that can happen across all businesses.
0: So let me ask you this just as we wrap up. If you were starting something new from from scratch, how would you approach this? day one, the, the, the thing, of course, that's so hard about the answers to these questions is that usually startups, they're pretty organic, right? You, you start actually doing or working on something before you realize, oh, this could be a thing. But if you were doing it really just you know, scientifically from scratch, how would you approach the sales strategy?
1: Can I frame it in a technology standpoint and then a more traditional service business?
0: 100%.
1: Yeah, cool. So... I mean, I do this, my company sell anything, we do this for businesses, right? So we build go-to-market playbooks. And if if they're very early on, let's say they have their first few clients, the big thing we focus on is actually frustrating for most founders, but we want to spend a bit more time in research phase of their ideal client profile. So who is this first audience that our current product will actually be used by as soon as we sell it to them? And how big is that market? So making sure we go, all right. This is our ideal client profile. This is how big they are. This is what they look like. This is what they sound like. This is the job we're doing for them. The problem we solve. All of that, and then going. Where are they? How do we find more of them? How do we communicate with them? How do we open that door? And just doing that. That's really that's really step one. And then once we figured that out, I go. What's the easiest way for me to communicate with them? So if you know when I've been in blue collar industries, it's really been phone call getting people while they're driving around or on, on a job site or doing services is a great way to have a conversation. But what I would make sure I have set up is my tooling. So whether I'm using Notion or Airtable or Google Sheets, just to be storing basic information. So you don't need to go really far with building this whole CRM when you're first doing sales efforts. But I would just make sure I have a very consistent flow of the company, the person, their details, my notes from the conversation, and just to see what steps they took. Because you can start to actually break down a very early sales process of I called 20 people, I booked one meeting, or I sent three emails and then I followed up. And what we're looking for really is just first insights into a process that we can repeat. That is step one. And the that's from a process level, but from a digital business level, I would just have a website with an email, one page, like what, you know, kind of the goes through all the basics of problem, solution, who we are, why we are, and that's it. I, I would keep it really simple, really lean. I would use Notion for my for my current company. We use Notion as our first website. We spent $1 on a a link that would turn it into a website as well. It was super cheap and nasty. And then for a more traditional business, so like let's say a services business, I did this last year when I started my current business. I actually gave time away for free to people who were actually asking for help. So I gave them all kind of like 3 hours of my time. And then, or enough time for them to get value. Mm-hmm. Um, once they saw value, I put a price in front of it. And everyone bought at different prices originally, but now we have, you know, our set price. And then I just started communicating where those people are. So if you're running a mowing business, car washing business to residential people, you might do a flyer drop. You might have a QR code with an offer for, you know, that postcode. And then you collect people's numbers, you call them, you have a conversation, you book the work. If you're doing consulting or coaching or something, it might just be as simple as using Instagram DMs or LinkedIn direct outreach. And the main thing though is giving something away for free in a lot of these services business or a discount, enticing people to switch from potential other services or get problem aware enough that they're interested to buy and then just starting the conversation. But the main point of it all is you're actively taking action. So you're actually you know, learning about them. You're being very clear on your value and potentially the cost. And then you're doing the activity like you a lot of people do this the starting but they get stopped at the activity because they're you know scared to go do that but just start with one rep a day i'm huge on reps like just do one rep a day watch it pile up or make it really easy for yourself to achieve it as well
0: sean i think we could probably talk for a lot longer this has been great we'll have to have you back and i really appreciate your time today
1: amazing scotty thank you so much for having me
0: You can find out more about Sean Greeley at sellanything.io. And that's it for the bootstrap for this week. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to subscribe or follow the show wherever you listen. And of course, we'd love a positive rating and review to help others find the show. We now have our own LinkedIn page. Just search the bootstrap podcast startups from scratch and give us a follow. We'd love you to join in the conversation, tell us what you think about the discussions on our episodes, and give us some suggestions for things that we should cover in the future. The Bootstrap is a production of Swivel Media and The Product Bus. It was developed by me, Scotty Allen, and Declan McGee. This episode was produced and written by Declan McGee, edited by Sammy Perriman, sound design and mixed by Rob Clark. If you're an early stage founder looking for resources and practical help, check out theproductbus.com and get in touch.